Welcome to Software Snack Bites. I'm your host, Sho McGosh of Bold Start Ventures, where we partner with dev first and SaaS founders from the first line of code. Today, we're excited to have Brian Chambers on the show. Brian is Chief Architect at Chick-fil-A. In this episode, we're going to cover all things enterprise architecture, the technology powering the fast food that we eat every day, and new technology that Chick-fil-A is also using. So welcome to the show, Brian. Thanks for having me, Shomik. It's an honor to be here and looking forward to it. I'm really excited to dig into things. But let's just start off with your background. Like I happen to know you've been at Chick-fil-A for 19 years. And so how'd that all come about? Talk about where you grew up and and how you got into Chick-fil-A. Yeah, it's great. So I live in Georgia and uh, that's where I grew up. And Chick-fil-A has been around here for pretty much my entire lifetime. It all started out of Atlanta, down on the south side with a restaurant that Truett Cathy opened called the Dwarf Grill, actually. So we actually have these things called dwarf houses here in Atlanta that if you're ever in the area, you might see. And that's kind of why. But Chick-fil-A was kind of a normal part of life. And when I started looking for really flexible jobs when I was in school, I ended up working at a Chick-fil-A restaurant for about three and a half years, which honestly, like one of the things I wanted in a part-time job as a kid was something that was really busy and where there was always something to do. And even back then, that's probably 24 years ago. When I started that, they were pretty busy and there was never a dull moment. There was always something to, someone to serve, something to clean, something to do. That's kind of how I got familiar with Chick-fil-A in the first place. I went to the University of Georgia, two-time back-to-back national championship, college football kings at the moment. So that's awesome. I went there and uh, Chick-fil-A uh, did some on-campus recruiting. So I actually interviewed and you know, the day I got an offer from Chick-fil-A, I was like, yep, this is where I want to be and took it and been there ever since. So it's crazy. It's been 19 years. I mean, time flies by, but... That's kind of what actually got me familiar with it. So I knew about the values of the company and and what it was all about and had worked there. And then transitioning into working on the corporate side has been really fun. So it's been a great journey. Well, I think over that time, I mean, Chick-fil-A has just frankly exploded, right? I mean, it's gone gone viral with every single new sandwich that comes out with the process behind the supply chain, behind how customers are served. I mean, everything, you know, even being closed on Sundays, like it's just every Chick-fil-A is in the news, you know, a lot. And and people are, (laughs) are very excited about the food that's getting delivered and the way that it's being run. And so I think, what was it like just seeing Chick-fil-A evolve over that 19 years? Yeah, really, really interesting. So the first word I think of is growth. But like, what's really cool is that there's a whole lot of stuff that has changed. I'll give you some examples. But then there's also some things that have stayed the same across that entire time, which I think is really important as well. So you don't kind of just like change with the wind. So like, just some fun examples. Like when I remember when I started, they had just celebrated the first year where we hit a billion dollars in annual sales. It was in the news recently. We were like almost $19 billion last year. So pretty huge growth in terms of like the business itself, the amount of volume that we're doing, obviously the number of restaurants and the number of corporate staff and all of those kinds of things. Those have been huge changes. Some other fun ones though, like when I started, we didn't take credit cards. We weren't in your state of California. (laughs) Um, There are no milkshakes, no people with iPads in the drive-through, like no lean management processes in the restaurants. There was no customer-facing mobile application, so no digital sales at all, no digital menu boards. We still sold coleslaw and carrot and raisin salad, which I think a lot of people probably wish were back, but they're not. You know, and we're pretty much in all the states now except for Alaska and North Dakota. So just like huge business growth over that time period. You know, we didn't deliver food before, now we do. So there's just a ton of stuff that's changed both like in the way the business works and, and some of that you know, is how technology has been a part of it. But then there's a bunch of things I think that are the same, which is really cool. Like over that time period, like every person I have ever worked for, every boss I've ever had, 
genuinely cared about me as a person. And I don't just mean that like on a surface, but like they also cared about my career and my growth and like helping recognize what I did and giving me opportunity and things like that. And that hasn't changed. Having a culture that's value centered and that really wants to genuinely serve every single person who walks into a restaurant or into our corporate office. We say honor, dignity and respect all the time. And that's like as true today as it was the day I started. And it's like in the DNA of the company. And I think that's pretty rare that values aren't just on the wall. They're actually like truly lived out in the way that people interact with each other. And so I just think it's really cool that while the things that make the business go and grow have shifted and changed, we've stayed anchored to the stuff that I think makes us who we are. And it's probably the reason when you go to a Chick-fil-A, you get a good experience from like people who are smiling and who care. And that's not always true everywhere else. So it's been interesting to see that over the over the 19 years. I can't say I've ever had a bad experience. Like even if things are running out or or whatever, it's like the employees are always very helpful and, and courteous. And so clearly if you something do let me know. <laughs> <laughs> clearly something's going right in the culture. So but we talked to, you know, this is obviously a podcast covering technology. Yeah. I think we would love to get into the technology perspective. So when you first started, I don't think cloud was even really a thing. Uh, no. so, so AWS hadn't even launched. Talk about what it was like, you mentioned not even having a mobile app, not having delivery, you know, all the lean process things implemented. So what happened from a technology perspective, I guess maybe if you could call it phase shifts or something along that journey, but if you could talk what those phase shifts were. Yeah, absolutely. So when I started at Chick-fil-A, which was summer of 2004, we had a data center on the second floor of the building, our office building on the campus. And it was hilarious because with that came like an external generator, you know, that had to run in case the power went out. And so funny things would happen like the lights would flicker and you'd hear like footsteps like running down the hall because people were like running to check and see did that generator kick on or were we going to have like a complete outage of all of the systems that ran in that single data center so like that's our roots they were simple i don't know if a lot of people did that back in that time period but we definitely did and our system portfolio was really like oracle erp with like bolts on to it of all these different like forms and apps that people needed to use and then some like restaurant system stuff, like obviously we had a, a point of sale system, but it was like a giant brick, <laughs> um, like huge brick that you basically had like keys for each item and that was it. So like no touch screens and all those things. And so interesting world, our restaurant systems is something I actually worked on in the early days. And we used to do these client server apps in the back of all the restaurants. So kind of maybe like a little bit like edge computing, which I know we'll talk about later, but they had Sybase databases on them. I don't know if you remember Sybase or not, but we would replicate those like over dial-up internet connections back to these like consolidated databases that held all the data from the restaurants and then do a bunch of ETL to like pump that stuff into our ERP and make sure that we knew like what deposits had been made at restaurants and like cash management stuff, place orders on behalf of restaurants for inventory and things like that. So it's really funny to think about that world. And then sort of like there was a stage we shifted into where we were kind of like a lot of big enterprises with like kind of the enterprise middleware footprint, like the Oracle stuff, Soa Suite type things and MuleSoft and like a bunch of integration tools, but probably like less than 10 people who did engineering and like pretty much nobody writing custom code for the most part, like little bits here and there, but very little. And then about eight years ago or so, Ballpark, that's when we started getting into the cloud and it was pretty early on. And Amazon was like the thing then pretty much, like nobody else was really even competing with them yet. So we started getting into that. And as that grew, that really created a shift in our organization that was really fun to be a part of, where we went from just that old school footprint to saying, like, to get where we want to go in the future, technology is going to be important. And one thing that's going to be really critical for us to do technology well is going to be 
being able to build our own software. So we went from like those 10 engineers eight or 10 years ago to like hundreds today between full-time staff and contractors and partners who work with us. And that all kind of went together. So it was like build the engineering muscle and learn to build things ourselves. Stop doing a lot of like the traditional enterprise middleware stuff and start building things in modern programming languages. That was Java early, but today, you know, Java, Python, Golang, React Native, et cetera. And then with that was a shift towards all the different things that are happening, you know, trend-wise in modern computing, microservices to some extent, and later Kubernetes and all those kinds of things. So I would kind of say we had those three phases of like, we did it all ourselves. We moved to kind of like, it was actually a colo data center where we did a lot of that middleware stuff. And then we moved to kind of this like, let's not build everything, but let's make sure that we have the capacity to build the stuff that really matters. And for us, like things like the customer digital experience where the scale you get from cloud is really important to the success of the solution. Modern analytics, you know, where we got beyond databases we could run ourselves to like Amazon Redshifts and Hadoop stuff and things like that. And on and on. Those are the things that really drove us into the cloud. I think that has been a really good era for us. Like we've been able to do so much stuff with technology that's kind of cloud native to use the buzzword, but also it's taught us a paradigm. I think that's let us do other things that are interesting, like what we've done at the edge and things like that as well. You mentioned kind of working on restaurant management systems early on, corporate workflows versus like restaurant workflows, right? Is there one that's more important? Because I'm assuming that restaurants is like where the actual revenue is generated, right? So if you screw up the POS system and you're not able to take the money, right? Um, I imagine that's a pretty freaking big deal, right? So is that kind of a thought process or approach that the company has or not so much? I wouldn't say more important. Like I think that all the things have different kinds of value. But I think like there's a degree of operational importance, maybe is the way to put it, that we do recognize, like if we think about sort of like tiering of applications or whatever. So, I mean, you you hit it right on the head, like changes to point of sale, you know, we're really careful and thoughtful about and credit card processing is super important. And over the last several years, especially since COVID, our digital sales channels, people ordering through the mobile app or via partners like DoorDash or whatever else, that's become a really huge deal. So those are some of the things that we can keep selling chicken in most cases without them if we have to, but they're potentially really big impactors. And we're a business that wants to make sure that people have really good frictionless experiences when they interact with Chick-fil-A. And so while we could work around it and make things work, I mean, honestly, a lot of stores, if everything was down, they would probably just be giving away food to keep customers happy. There's stories from the past where those kinds of things have happened. Don't try and take our store down so you can get free food. (laughs) Um, But uh, those kinds of things have happened in the past. So we can live without it sometimes. And we try and be really thoughtful about what's going to happen if this thing breaks. And is there like a fallback, like a degraded experience that we can offer? But those things are super important. So we do put a lot of energy into making sure that We have the appropriate, really it's architecture. We have the right way of thinking about those systems. And we've thought about like keeping them up as much as possible and performing as much as possible. But then like, if they're down, like, do we have a fallback? So like to get orders into the restaurant from digital, we actually have multiple channels. So if one of them breaks for some reason, we can actually do a cutover and start pumping things in through a different channel. It's a little less ideal, but it works also. So we try and do things like that a lot to manage those trade-offs. Yeah. So we talked about the phase shifts that Chick-fil-A went through over the years, but I imagine, you know, we just talked about point of sale. Maybe this is an example, maybe not, but there's some processes that still have to run on so-called, you know, legacy systems, mm-hmm. right? Billing or inventory processes or, or whatever. So can you give an example of one such process that is kind of legacy? And then how do you make the decision of whether to modernize the tech behind something like that versus just saying, hey, listen, 
it's working and until frankly it breaks or, or, or maybe it'll never break. Right. But we should just let it keep working. Yeah, that's really great. So just to pick a random example, cause we have quite a bit of legacy stuff that remains, but like one of the systems that we use to help us with real estate site selection, location development, project management, things like that. So kind of think like restaurant design and development domain that still lives in our legacy colo data center. And there's a whole bunch of stuff that still lives there. So the way that we've really thought about that comes back to opportunity cost. So I've heard a lot of organizations that have a strategy, which is we're going to go all in on cloud. And then they spend a lot of energy migrating everything over to the cloud. And then they're like all there in the cloud. And that's a great spot to be. The unfortunate reality is like constrained resources, right? Like you can only get so many people and so much money and you have to choose what you're going to do with it to try and have the maximum impact. And so what we've elected to do rather than just like pick everything up and try and move it and like do lift and shifts that don't really change the architecture and don't really give you any benefit or even just like spend tons and tons of energy re-architecting, rebuilding, retesting everything. We've tried to look at things as we think about like our three to five year roadmap. What are the things that are going to kind of get touched anyway that are still legacy? And can we make a plan to say, next time we touch this, let's do the hard work of redesigning, re-architecting, finding a SaaS application. It doesn't have to be us doing it anymore. But can we take these legacy things that we have and can we smartly put them in a new place? And in doing so, either take advantage of SaaS, like I said, because somebody else is going to manage almost everything that we care about. Like we go from admin to power user or just user. And that's awesome. We love that. If it's something that we need to keep and continue to run, can we do it in a way that we get the advantages of the cloud versus just checking the box that we put it in the cloud? And what I would call that also is kind of like a cap and grow strategy. So we kind of don't do new stuff in the data center and everything we've done the last seven to eight years for the most part has been kind of cloud first and built with like cloud native practices, kind of the stuff you'd expect to see in most organizations that are embracing cloud. That legacy stuff, we just sort of like chipped away at it over time. And my theory and thesis is that pretty shortly, we're going to kind of reach that tipping point where it's like, there's more stuff that is actually like all the surrounding infrastructure in a a data center, the load balancing, the firewalls, the management stuff, all the tools. There's going to be more of that stuff left than there actually is like business value generating apps. And then it's like, okay, it's kind of a no brainer to invest energy to move these 50 things, you know, in the next two years and just be done. So I think we'll get there, but we haven't been super aggressive about going after all those things and making sure that we move them over really rapidly. We've kind of been opportunistic and we've tried to use that opportunity cost play to instead focus on like, what are the new things we can do and build that solve a lot of our business challenges? Getting more people through the restaurant, you know, with a great experience, which we call restaurant capacity or the customer digital experience or building up our own supply chain delivery company or things like that. Yeah. In some of the processes that I'm thinking about, so let's say point of sale system. I imagine again, you know, you're doing some sort of cloud processing from the point of sale system right now, but at the same time, you know, a failover to a server, right? That's that's on location or nearby or something, I imagine is it's a pretty good thing in case for some reason the connection to the cloud goes down. Maybe point of sale is not the right example, but like how do you think about are there times actually where so-called legacy systems actually help because you still have a failover that processes are codified, people understand it. So even though you have this new cloud first or whatever process you're using, you can always fail over to that more legacy state. Is that a right way to think about it or, or not really? 
I'd say like with Ponticello as an example, it actually is a good example of legacy because we're actually, you know, if you go into one of our restaurants today, we've got kind of like a branch, a, a mainline point of sale system that we've added a bunch to over time. It's kind of unique to us, but it's not like completely unique. We didn't build it from the ground up. That's been a good thing for us. Like I talked about how far we've grown from when I started at Chick-fil-A till now. And that point of sale system has been the point of sale system for like the vast majority of that, like 15 years and $16 billion worth of sales growth. So that's been incredibly awesome and has done an awesome job for us. At the same time, we're at that point now where we're thinking about what's the future of a system like that need to look like to allow us to pivot and change with the business. So I think the demands of workers are changing. Like people are, you know, technology native today, like the people working in our restaurants where when I worked there, like we didn't have cell phones yet or anything like that. It's like the world's changed a lot. So we're trying to figure out how do we modernize the experience for the team members in the restaurant to make things simple and intuitive and easy for them along the way? How do we also keep upping that availability that we have? Like I said, we've made some really smart decisions about not getting too like cute about the architectures we use with all this like modern stuff that makes them really great, but also maybe sometimes more brittle. Like our point of sale system historically used uh, UDP broadcast to communicate when like an order came and got rung in and how it got to like the KPS, which is the kitchen production system, the screens that like help people know, hey, did Shomik and he order a Chick-fil-A sandwich, no pickles, and we need to prep that, or what do we need to put in his bag? So like, that's a pretty low tech solution, but it's worked extraordinarily well because you just need a working land for that to work. And we have a pretty good working land at the edge in our restaurants. So there's cases like that where something more creative, like maybe using some sort of messaging broker might sound really awesome, but probably is more brittle than the SLA is on our land. So there's some trade-offs like that, that we've made over time and, and maybe simple solutions that sound like you could do something more sophisticated, but they just work. And so it makes sense to keep using them. Now, that is one that we may do some reinventing on and do some new things that you know we'll be able to share in the future, kind of are cracking that egg right now. But that's a great example of one where like legacy has worked well. And if we had just changed it for the sake of change, it probably wouldn't have really served us near as well. What we really did with that, though, is we layered into the ordering experience all of this digital stuff. And we started to carve off some of the things that were part of this like sort of monolithic POS system and move some of those pieces into the cloud where we could actually talk to them via... APIs from the mobile app and have them, you know, cross talk to each other and start to build out more of like a digital ecosystem in the cloud that that everything could interact with. And that kind of sets us up for where we want to go in the future as we want to change other components and add new experiences for customers and things like that. Yeah. When you make a change, you're affecting now close to $20 billion of revenue, right? In some cases, I mean, maybe sure. not everything, but you're, you're, it's, it's a pretty wide impact. You also have customers, you have internal employees, you have internal employees at corporate and also at the restaurants. I mean, there's just so many different components of people who could get affected by, let's say the mobile app, right? Changing or the screen, even in the store of what is showing <laughs> or something, right? So yeah. is there a design process that you have to go through to figure out these changes? and Or just how do you think about the communication and making a change like that? Yeah, that's a great question. I want to use the customer area as an example and want to give a shout out to the team that works on that. There's like over 100 people who work on all things related to our Chick-fil-A one mobile application. I believe it's like 32 engineering teams. And so like anything I say, I don't want it to sound like I'm taking credit for their amazing work because they do a really great job in everything that they do. So let's get that part out of the way. I'm sure some of them will probably listen. They're awesome. They do a great job. So, And they've been able to be really smart about some things that I think 
make us less likely to you know, blow up things that are really critical. Uh, one of those that I, I know we talk about a lot today in the software industry, but I think we could even talk about more is like the value of small incremental changes and frequent <laughs> releases and building things that are loosely coupled together so that if something breaks, you know, quickly and it was pretty tightly scoped and it can be rolled back or fixed and you can go back to normal, right? That is like probably the most important thing I think that we can possibly do because the reality is like we're human and, and as good as the tooling is, as good as the pipelines get, as much as AI or whatever helps us find things that are wrong, we're probably going to find ways to mess up a config that takes something down or we're going to find ways to miss something. Somebody's going to do something we didn't expect and there's going to be a bug and something is going to break. Like it's going to happen. So if we can keep the changes that we make small and tight and frequent, we should have feedback loops, hopefully like on a daily basis that let us know things are looking good. Like, you know, and use modern techniques, canary rollouts and things like that. Make sure that we know things are looking good and that we find and address issues really quickly while they're small before they have a chance to cascade and become really big. So I'd say that's one of the most important things and the most important strategies. In terms of like internal process, we also have some really good work that people have done. Um, this isn't mine either, but some really good work around the industry term, I guess, would be change management, but we kind of call it our readiness process. So it's a bunch of, bunch of questions just to go through and think about before you're going to put something specifically in a restaurant, because I mean, that's where the business happens. That's where it's really important. We don't let complexity creep in and keep things as simple as possible. When you're getting ready to think about putting something out there, there's a whole series of things, steps to go through to make sure you're thinking about how this is going to get supported. What are all the dependencies that are involved in the picture? What's all the stuff that could go wrong? And have you thought about it? How are the people going to interact with it? How's it fit into their user experience? So I think we're really good about asking a lot of those questions and being mindful about really complexity and then impact on user experience. And that is a big help as well. One of the things that is a pet peeve for me is introducing more technology can feel like it's making problems go away. Like, look, we put this thing here and it does this thing for you. And now you don't have to do that thing. But if you're not cognizant of like what that means for a person's experience, like maybe they were completely over here doing a different thing in a different headspace. And now you're asking them to like shift back and forth all day. That like user experience is ultimately what matters. And that would create a bad one. So I stole this phrase from Jim Collins, but I use it all the time. The undisciplined pursuit of more. And I just tag onto that technology. Like we got to be careful to not get into a mindset of the undisciplined pursuit of more technology and make sure that we are really thoughtful about using the right things, keeping things as simple as we possibly can, buying everything we can, and then making things that are unique to us, but making sure that they fit the experience that we want the people to have, whether those are like the operators and team members at the restaurant or the end customers who are ordering from us or getting deliveries or whatever else the case may be. Yeah. Well, I can't imagine when downtime does happen, the impact or, or how scary it is for the Chick-fil-A org. But I mean, clearly you guys have a codified process and, and a lot of things in place to, to deal with it. But I want to shift to talk a little bit more about architecture. And this is one of those titles that frankly gets thrown around <laughs> a lot. You hear about yeah. it and there's these personas especially at some of the, the large banks, for example, where it's like a chief architect who's been around for quite a long time and I don't know if has touched code in the past, uh, you know, maybe 20 or 30 years, right? Not to say some of them have, but just in general, there's this kind of paradigm or, or, or vision in people's mind of like, oh, the architect is this person who just sits on top of the mountain and tells people like, hey, this is what's going on. So, you know, <laughs> what actually is a chief architect? 
Well, number one, that title, I almost don't like using it because it's just like a fancy way. It almost feels like self-aggrandizing, but it's basically just a way to say, you lead the architecture practice at the company that you work for. <laughs> and so it's as simple as that. But what do, what do we actually do? So maybe it would be helpful for me to kind of explain what our architecture team does, my team does for the organization and kind of how that works. And feel free to ask me questions. So really, we work in two practices on our team. The first one, which is newer for us and, and isn't really our roots, but it's super important, is what we call business architecture. And if anybody's eye rolling, like stick with me. I think this is really important. <laughs> uh, so I think business architecture is really about getting with people in the business to understand a couple things like what is it that you guys actually do as a business, then look at the technology that is supporting those areas and make sure that it's like right sized, it's working well, it's mature, it's where we want it to be. If it's not, like have conversations about that and help them figure out how to ask to get things to where they need to go, like ask for new capability, ask for modernization, ask for transformation, whatever you want to call it, but help them do that. And then ultimately like work with them on road mapping. Where do you want to go in the future? And let's like, let's figure this out together. So it's kind of like a partnering with the business and see is technology supporting you well and where it's not, how do we get it to where we want it to be? And then, Hey, who else is involved? Like you may have a process that you work on, but like, look, there's these three other departments and other areas. You guys are all really working on the same thing. And right now our tech is all split and siloed. Here's the value that comes if we think about doing that differently and like, you know, either integrating or you expose the capabilities you have through APIs and interfaces so others can kind of use them like Lego blocks and build something different and new. So it's a lot of that stuff. It's kind of that like little bit less technical, still technology focused type of architecture. And like we're seeing a ton of value in the last like year and a half from doing that practice at Chick-fil-A. The second is what more people think about, which is our technology architecture practice. I've done some writing about this. Uh, I won't like name every single thing that we do there, but that's a group of people who I'd say is more focused on what's technically possible. What are the sort of technology capabilities that are shared across the organization that we need to build out? So like some examples might be what's our strategy around how we do, you know, application platform, IDP type stuff, use Spotify backstage to make a great developer portal experience to surround like the app platform itself. Like how do you get things deployed? It could be those types of things. We also do a lot in the analytics space. So like what are those foundational analytics technologies that enable people who are analysts across the business and data scientists to do the things that they need to do and on and on and on, right? So kind of that, how do we ultimately make sure that we are picking and investing in the things that are the best fits for us? And again, that like undisciplined pursuit of more thing I mentioned comes right back here because Everybody wants to pick new things and use them and thinks they'll be really valuable. And they probably would be. But at some point, there's a cost to complexity that's actually going to make things slow down and, and probably you know come to a halt. So that part of the team, that discipline is really about making sure that we're bringing in the right things. We're kind of trend spotting and staying relevant and that we're helping people ultimately apply those to their areas. What it's not is that we don't take over every single area and tell them, OK, you want to do this thing. We know you really like that database, but you should use this one instead. We know you want to use Java, but we don't like Java, so you should use Golang. We give a lot of opinions, but we don't come in and mandate that people do those things. So we're more focused on the shared than on just coming into a product team with engineers and like killing their creativity and telling them what to do. We really don't do that. We don't have time to do that. We don't want to do that. That's no fun. We really want to focus on building a solid foundation that hopefully is a force multiplier for everybody else who's building things at Chick-fil-A. Can I ask between those two teams, right? I imagine... 
I mean, there's just so much context that each of those teams has, and then they also have to share. And so one, how are you actually getting that context shared? And two, like I imagine, you know, when I think architecture, I think like architecture diagrams, right? Like Lucid Charter, mm-hmm. things like that, right? They're out there. And yeah. I mean, I, I guess like, are you doing a business workflow mapping too from a diagram perspective? And then you also have a technical architecture and then teams are coming together and saying, hey, here's how these two work together and drawing like lines or like, how do you, how do you get that shared context? And and how do you visualize it? Yeah, you nailed one of the most important things, which is context. And like, I honestly tell a lot of people that a big part of my job from like leading the architecture practice is just creating context and connections, like helping people understand the big picture, because I've gotten to see it develop over, you know, 19 years, like we've talked about, and then uh, making connections of like, oh, you need to know that these people are working on this, like go connect with them. That is a ton of it is almost like context and routing people to the right places. So yeah, it's so important. So we do a number of different things. That business architecture practice I mentioned, very much about like the business processes, the capabilities. That's the popular word that you'll find if you go look up business architecture is a business capability mapping and all that stuff. So there's a ton of like how the business works type diagramming and and kind of designing there. Like, are we working in the right way? Do we need to do something there? So that's kind of like one half of it. And then on the technical side, what you're going to see is a lot more, maybe a design for a shared thing, like, how are we going to ultimately do our application platform, which might be like, we're going to have things hit Cloudflare. And then when they come in, they're going to hit a Kubernetes cluster and do glue for ingress. And then that's going to pass into, you know, this and that thing. And we're going to, or we're not going to do a service mesh, yada, yada, yada. It might be stuff like that at a platform level, or it might be design of this like actual process thing that we're doing touches on a bunch of different product teams, like eight or 10 product teams. So it could actually be like, how is all the technology from each of these going to interact with each other? And are there gaps in there where like, hey, this group doesn't have an API that does this thing and we really need it because it's a building block for this other team over here. So it could also be sort of like how you assemble the pieces together to actually build whatever that thing is that you've kind of envisioned and you want to have happen. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. So you have all this context, you're looking at a lot of different things. I mean, clearly... At the same time, you're thinking about what's the future and what's going to happen ahead. And so, you know, we'll actually talk a little bit about some of that future stuff in a, in a little bit later in the episode. But how do you yourself go through and say, okay, I need to spend time figuring out this new technology? Do you block out chunks of time? Do you block out like a week and be like, hey, LLMs, right? Very cool stuff going on. I imagine conversational UIs or all sorts of things could have a major impact to Chick-fil-A's business. But at the same time, you probably have people coming up to you and saying, hey, listen, you know, we have some downtime on this app or we could figure out how to make delivery faster or whatever. Right. So how do you kind of manage that and think about, you know, the future stuff versus also the day to day things that you need to understand and deep dive into? First thing that comes to my mind is like humility and realizing that I won't always have all the answers to everything that everyone wants to know. But then also knowing that because of the fact that I can't do everything and I'm not the best at doing everything. I've been able to like build a team that is super capable and that is really good at getting their heads around things. So to answer your, your actual question, to me, I think there's kind of what I call the theory of waves, which is architecture, enterprise architecture, software architecture, whatever you want to call it. It's a highly influence-based role. And influence, you don't just get for free. It's not cheap. It takes trust building. And so it takes time. You've got to help people win and you've got to help them get where they're trying to go before they really want to listen to all of your inputs. And so that's generally like when somebody's on the team, they spend a lot of time doing that. 
we have to build and earn influence. And so like point being is that takes time. And in my role, I'm having to influence all kinds of different levels of people. Some of it may be down in the engineering weeds and then all the way up to like leadership levels and discussions about where we put money, where we put capital investments. So to do that, like I need to be able to have time to influence, but I also can't come into meetings and just say buzzwords and not really know what I'm actually talking about. So I have to do what you said. The way I do it is I have my periods of like deep dive and then periods of like surface and influence. And then I sort of start to either get like this intuition that it's time to dive deep again, or I just get antsy and I'm like, I got to make something, I got to play with something and start digging in. But those can be different sizes. Like sometimes it might be like a year or two deep dive. Like that's kind of what happened in my experience with cloud at Chick-fil-A is I went super deep into it for a long time. And like me and a couple other fellow architects were the people who uh, a lot of the engineering teams would come to when they hit some weird sticky, you know, AWS networking issue or something like that. And they were stuck. And it was like, we'd dig in together and we'd like figure it out together. And we were like domain experts. But that time to need to be the domain expert who helped everyone with their problem kind of became more of like a hero thing than like really scaling the org. So we really tried to help empower other people and create other systems for them to be able to to get all the info they needed. And that worked really well. And so it was like time to surface and influence based on a lot of those learnings and kind of help set bigger, higher level direction. And then it was another deep dive probably a year later or maybe in six months later with a lot of the edge computing stuff that we did. And that was a year and a half or so window of super deep and even writing code and stuff like that. And then back up again. So I won't go through all of the waves that I've experienced, you know, kind of in my time on the team, but I think it's critical to never get too, too far away from technical reality. And I do it through either like tinkering and building things or reading, you know, I read quite a bit about what other people are doing. But then I also do a ton of writing because I find that if you're going to say something to someone else and you can't come back in a sentence and clarify it, like, 10 seconds later, you have to be really, really clear about what you were saying and you have to really absolutely know it. And so by writing about things, it also forces me to make sure I'm not just saying words that sound good, but I'm actually like getting things that are, are real, they're based in reality that I understand. I can I can articulate them like nearly perfectly. And if I can do that for an external audience with no Chick-fil-A context, I can absolutely use that that stuff internally. So those are like just some tools for me. I do the writing thing every week. So I've got like a sense of deep dive there. And I have my seasons that tend to run more like six months to a year where it's like influence, you know, focus on business architecture for 18 months. And it's like, now it's time to dig into the the tech stuff again. And I think LLMs and the AI space is one of those spots where I want to get closer to it and know exactly what's going on and, you know, play with the auto GPTs and baby AGI and some of these things that are uh, taking over Twitter and really know how things are working so that I can inform a strategy that isn't based on like research articles, but it's based on actual understanding of the tech. And of course, I have my team to lean on, but I, but I want to do it myself so that I'm not ever too far away removed from the actual technology myself. Yeah. We'll link to your writing both on Chick-fil-A's Medium and then also, you know, the Chamber of Secrets. Yeah. I love that name. It's great. You're a big <laughs> Harry Potter fan. And so that was yeah. perfect. But, uh, <laughs> but we'll link to that there because, you know, actually, ironically, that's how we met was me reaching yeah. out through you through one of your articles. And I think it's frankly stuff that just gives us a viewpoint into enterprise can seem like this big, scary thing to a lot of software developers, right? Because, you know, it's just long sales cycles and things like that. And I think it's it's interesting because you were kind of demystifying some of those things. But one thing I, I wanted to talk about, actually, in your writing, one of the things I think is great is you talk about 
the technical side of things, but then you also map it to the business outcome and what's going on. And you know, you talked a little bit about capital allocation and how you have to do the influence of, well, how should we spend the money and allocate the resources? How do you map something like, hey, I'm going to do Kubernetes on the edge, right? <laughs> we'll talk more about that actually. But like when you do something yeah. like that, and then you're going to, I don't want to say anybody specifically in your, but like, you know, you're going to the execs at Chick-fil-A on the business side and you're saying, hey, you know, I'm going to go do this thing, right? What are they even like, they're like edge computing Kubernetes, like, <laughs> you know, like how do you influence them? And like, how do you tell them that this is something that if we invest lots of time and resources behind, it'll enable this process, which will then have the impact, you know, for the next 10 years, right? Like, how does that work? Yeah, I think you're hitting on what I would say is the the power of storytelling. And like a story can't just be a bunch of details that you share, right? Like there's a lot of cool technology and it'd be really easy to lead with that. But for us, we find success when we circle back and make ourselves go back and say, okay, like why would we want to do this in the first place? And like, what is it that the business is actually going to get if this is successful? And then how do we go back to those human experiences that are happening and find those stories that exist, like a great one that would support that edge one that you talked about, the edge use case. There's a bunch of research that was done by the business about our team members experience working at the fry cooking station. It's like a really hard job. Like you have to go really fast. You know, it's like temperature warm all the time. Like it's kind of stressful because if you're like not fast enough and you're falling behind, you might have like people yelling at you from the front. Like we need large fries. We need large fries. Not to mention that there's actually over the course of a day, it's kind of like a physically demanding role to play. Like you're on your feet the whole day, you're lifting a lot of weight, like all those boxes of fries that we get, of frozen fries that we cook. I think they're like roughly 50 pounds or 40 pounds. They did some math on those. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's like over the course of a day, you'd lift like thousands of pounds in fries with all the times that you moved them around. So like physically hard, mentally hard, kind of stressful. So like, we don't want that for people that work in the restaurant. Like we want them to have a great experience. And so we started looking for ways to take something like that and say, are there ways that technology can ultimately improve this? Are there things that we could do to make this job less stressful, like on the cognitive load side, or could we even like not make people have to do fries and automate it? We haven't done that yet, but really trying to look at things like that. So the whole reason I say all that is a story like that, that talks about the human experience and then perhaps also like the business impact that happens those things put together, that sells like technology investments when they're right size to what's needed. And if you have like four or five of those stories that exist, as we did with our edge computing, really the, the putting edge compute in, we didn't even really talk about it. What we talked about was connecting things in the restaurant to make it possible to like ultimately orchestrate the experiences that people had. So having a whole bunch of smart kitchen equipment, having smarter workstations for team members, those are the things that sold the idea. And because that idea sells, the technology that enables it kind of follows. And I'd say almost every time, that's the kind of approach that we want to take. We don't want to come with the tech first, like everybody's doing this, so we should do it. That like never works and it, I don't think it ever will. But if we do this, we can you know, enable better customer service. We can make team members have happier jobs. You know, We can increase this restaurant's capacity throughput by X percent. Like, the business outcomes and those objectives and the experiences that people have of Chick-fil-A, because like I didn't mention this earlier, but like one of the parts of our purpose says that we want to have a positive influence on all who come in contact with Chick-fil-A. We literally tie things that we're investing in to that very fact because it really matters. 
So I think that's the way that we actually ultimately sell things in our business. Another one that would be like, we try and show and not tell as much as possible. Like sometimes telling a story about tech is really hard and you need a lot of like shared vocabulary. It's really easy to surface to buzzwords, which can have different definitions in people's minds. But people seeing like a prototype or, you know, a mock-up of how something's going to work or a story like we talked about, like that stuff actually sticks. And I think people can understand it better. And I think that actually works far better than kind of leading with the tech. So that's what we do is try and do a good job storytelling and really tying back to the impact it's going to have on the restaurants most of the time. Got it. I'm excited to dive into the edge computing stuff. But before we get there, I have one last like kind of more architecture question, which is, you know, a lot of times the simplest solution may not be the most scalable or the most cost-effective on a dollar basis or robust enough. However, it's very simple. It gets the job done. It gets it done quickly. And maybe it can also work for the next one to two years or something like that. So how do you work through those trade-offs of scalability, future-proofing, total cost of ownership, and things like that when you're making architecture decisions? I think the engineering part of all of us wants to account for every possibility and build for every possibility and make sure that everything is perfect all the time, right? It's like, we can almost get obsessed with that. But like you said, there's times where kind of like the bronze solution, like instead of the gold or platinum is like perfectly good enough. And we just need to be okay to say the reason for technology is to help the business, not to be technology for technology's sake. And so I think that's like the mindset that we have to have when we think about those trade-offs. And obviously like some of those solutions that are bronze in nature may have flaws, but if we can keep our investments in them small and like, maybe it's something we can even get out there and get value from and then quickly iterate on based on like feedback. Like how did this act? We thought this was going to work, but we didn't know, like, how do we get it out there and find out? And then maybe we have to scrap it. Maybe we have to move a different direction in a year, but those are things that are okay. Like, I think we can't get too concerned with getting every decision right the first time. Like I think a lot of the companies that we probably all respect the way that they've done their technology, like they swing and miss sometimes and are okay with it. And so I think it's okay to to swing and miss or to put something out that's not completely perfect and that needs improvement over time to kind of pick the bronze type solution and be okay with that. Be okay that things aren't perfect every time. And when we get into edge, we can talk about some of the trade-offs we made there, but there's a lot of things we could have put a lot more energy into But we opted for simple because we knew that like operating it at the scale we were going to do it was going to require as much simplicity as possible. Like every little degree of complexity that we add gets multiplied by, you know, roughly 3000, which can be a lot. So we had to be really smart about that stuff. So I kind of weigh those factors together and I use the term all the time, like right sized. Are we right sizing things for what they're intended to do? Like some things may not need to scale at all. They may not need to be future proofed. And they may just end up with a super low cost of ownership as a result. And so like, awesome, that's a great solution if that works and creates the experience we want. It's a really bad solution if it's like, that's the way that we address the thing that was like all of our revenue was going to go through, right? So it's like factoring in the situations that actually matter to your business and putting more but appropriate degrees of engineering behind those and then being okay with things that are maybe less critical and being okay with a bronze solution. So we actually had a CIO a few years back who that was kind of his mantra. And he would like, every time we had a department meeting with like the whole technology group, he would say some different presentation of that. Essentially, it's okay to make things that are bronze, like not everything has to be gold. And I thought that was just brilliant because we need to be reminded of that. Otherwise, we almost feel like we're not fully doing our jobs. Like it's possible to be more available. So let's do it. But sometimes it's just not the right decision. 
Got it. That makes a lot of sense. And that dovetails very nicely into edge compute. So you wrote a post, I think it was actually first post was 2018 or 2017 or something yeah, like that. 2018. 2018. Yeah. On using Kubernetes at the edge, meaning Kubernetes clusters deployed in restaurants. But yep. I think you actually had a post just last week about what edge means. And, and you kind of had these four areas that you talked about, but maybe just broadly, like kind of what does edge mean for someone who is saying like, okay, you know, you're deploying at the edge. Like, like, why is that cool? Why is that exciting? Yeah, this is the user experience show today. I think you have to remember that ultimately the things we do with infrastructure are always about applications, right? And applications are always about giving people the experience of something that they want, whether it's a, you know, buying a product or playing a game or whatever it may be. Like they're using technology, not because using technology is fun most of the time. Maybe for software engineers, we like to tinker just for fun, but for a lot of people, if they're using their mobile phone to do something, it's because they're trying to accomplish something in the real world or they want to be entertained or whatever the case may be. So I think the starting point when I think about the edge is that we always put things as close to the cloud as is absolutely possible, but some things just require, whether it's from a connected or disconnected network or a bandwidth throughput or a latency or whatever else, some things demand that we put compute resources closer than what the cloud data centers offer by default. And so I tend to call those things edge. And I just refer to four of them for simplicity. I'm sure if we want to get more nuanced, we could create all different kinds. And I don't actually consider cloud edge, but I'll put it in the four and say, there's cloud, there's the sort of cloud providers have them, but also like CDNs, so like your cloud flares and your Amazon cloud fronts and things like that. That's the next layer which is kind of like a regional data center or things like that. Some point of presence that's not just like US East and US West or Central or whatever else. So closer to the action, which is what it's all about. And then you have kind of what I call near edge, which would be what we do with our solution, where we actually have edge compute clusters that are in each restaurant to serve just that restaurant. And they actually consider devices to be edges as well because they provide compute resources and you know you can deploy applications there and they do things. Some people don't agree with me on that one. I just consider it part of the the options of where someone who wants to give a person an experience can choose to leverage compute resources. So to me, that's what Edge is about. It's when you do something outside of the cloud or your primary data center for the purpose of creating a better end user experience for your users. Got it. So let's talk about maybe one or two actual use cases that Kubernetes on the edge in a Chick-fil-A restaurant enables. Yeah, absolutely. I remember when we first wrote these posts in 2018 and probably ever since, like we were number one on Hacker News for a while and they're super popular, but also people love to hate. So like, why would you do this? This is way more complicated than it needs to be, yada, yada, yada. And, and I respect people's opinions. That's cool. You know, if you listen to people, you can learn something sometimes. So I definitely read some of the comments and didn't reply, but it's a great question. Like, why would you do that? And what was the point? It really started with us. Edge Compute came out of the desire to have a really good IoT strategy for our restaurants. So we were seeing pretty much all of our kitchen equipment having six to 18 month timeframes for starting to have the capability to be network connected, which means that in most cases they could send out data, they could potentially you know, run software, et cetera. So some people were talking about like making the devices smart and like putting intelligence on board on the devices. And to me, that just seemed like it probably was not going to work. And so what we wanted to do was make it possible to connect all of these different types of things together. And just for the listeners, when I say thing, I could mean like a fryer, a grill, 
a holding cabinet, a walk-in freezer, but it could also be like a tablet that displays things to a team member or like a TV screen that displays an app or things like that. So that's what I mean when I say IoT thing. We wanted those things to all be able to kind of interact with each other. And we wanted to be able to stitch together different types of experiences. So think about your bagging orders. You're making fries. We use making fries. So let's do that again. If you're making fries, what if instead of just seeing all of the current orders that are currently outstanding and trying to like guess what to do by synthesizing something that isn't optimized for you really quickly and making a decision, what if you had a purpose-built screen that took into account what fries are in holding, what fries are kind of in progress, what our current demand is and what forecasted incoming demand is, maybe based on like camera vision from the drive-through or historical forecast even, just like something we've computed based off historical sales. And then we mesh that stuff together into a, hey, we recommend you do this right now. So we actually do that with fries. We do that with chicken to some degree, a little less sophisticated, but should you cook nuggets or should you cook fillets or should you do grilled right now? We have some things that share fryer capacity. And so making the right decision and doing the right amount is really important for optimizing guest experience and minimizing weights, making sure we don't cook too much and things sit too long and we have to throw them away as waste because we don't want to serve people things that are you know not good quality. And we do that way before food safety, just for the record, but we want to make sure it's a great experience, right? So trying to bring all that stuff together and instead of having all these devices that think they're intelligent and then have to figure out how to talk to each other and react to each other, we wanted to externalize the brain of all that to something else and make those devices connected, but dumb. So they can basically send data about themselves. So we know what's going on and they can take commands like start a cooking cycle, start a cleaning cycle. But we put all the intelligence on the edge. And what we wanted to do when we had edge was be as much like the cloud as possible. So our developers could build the way they were used to. So to us, it was kind of a no brainer that the way to deploy a little app that's going to listen to, you know, the forecast data, the fryer data, incoming demand and like send out something, make an API, whatever, so that screen can show a team member what to do. We wanted that intelligence to be wrapped up in a container because that's how people build things. And so that was like our kind of, this is our cost of entry. It's going to be a container. So how do we run containers at the edge? We know we don't want a single node that's going to fail and everything goes down. We want a cluster. Okay, we looked at options, Docker Swarm, et cetera. That was the time where Kubernetes was really taking off and had a really rich ecosystem of tools. It still does. And so that's why we chose it. And that's kind of our really like our really fast version of our exact thought process of going from no edge computing for running apps in the back office to a cluster of Intel nooks running K3s and then running these like pretty lightweight apps that basically do orchestration of uh, IoT events and such in the restaurant. And then since we have that, we've been able to offer a place to deploy in restaurant applications to others who need to do things, whether it's, you know, similar like consuming data and making decisions and making things happen or exposing an API or running some sort of security software or whatever. If it goes in a container and it's reasonably sized, we'll run it. We like Golang apps that are from scratch for my developer people, but we'll run other stuff as well. But it basically gave us a place to externalize the intelligence from all these different things and make it super flexible because we can we can deploy changes to a containerized app like every day if we want, but updating the firmware on some of these devices or software on them while we have some processes to do it, it's a little bit more challenging. And we don't really want to brick like all the kitchen equipment in a restaurant with a software update. We'd rather that stuff just keep running so the business goes and put the stuff at the edge where we have a lot more control. So that's how we got there and kind of why we did what we did. And that's kind of our version of edge, even though for others, it may not make sense. Maybe Cloudflare and 
cloud front and those things are good enough for us being in the restaurant was really important. So network outages and things like that, just don't stop those processes from running. The only way they would die is if we lost our whole cluster, we lost our whole land, we lost power to the restaurant when we have to shut down anyway. That's kind of how we got to where we are. I kind of see a vision for CFAS, which is uh, which is like AWS, but Chick-fil-A services, you know, going out into the world. Maybe that's a 10-year vision down the road. We can mine your Bitcoin there, I guess, if you want. Um, definitely people ask us that many times. Are you mining Bitcoin there when nobody's in the store? No, no, we're not. They're not ASICs anyway, <laughs> but uh, always fun to have that conversation. <laughs> I love it. One thing I'm, I'm just curious about, so what does the actual fry cook see though? So you talked about all that's having in the background, but like is a fry cook then getting a screen that's like literally saying, hey, you need to, you should fire up five more pounds of fries or something because of the fact that we project that this is going to be coming in or what are they actually? Yeah, you're exactly right. So it's like basically tailoring the technology part of the experience at a workstation to what that workstation is. The history is you saw every single order. So like you're standing there at the fries and you're looking up at a screen that isn't even, it's usually over there, you know, off to the side, it's not right in front of you, but you're kind of like looking and you're like, I think I see a combo meal, a combo meal, that would be two. Like you're counting in your head. I've done this myself when I worked in the store, you're kind of guessing what's needed. And you're like, okay, I think we'll do like, you know, a full basket or we'll do two baskets. You're just making guesses. So we're taking that guesswork out for that person and telling them, this is what we think you should do. Obviously, if it's like the dining room is slammed with people, it's the middle of lunch, you may not really be doing that. You may just be going as fast as you can, right? But when it's not the busiest time of the day, it really helps to make sure that we're cooking the right amounts and it translates directly into like good food quality because we're, if we're cooking honestly just enough, that's when you're going to get like those crazy hot fries every time you come through. If we're cooking too much, that's when they're going to sit just a little bit longer. They're still safe, but they may not be perfect. And we want perfect as much as we can get it. So that's exactly right. And just take that pattern and apply that to the person breading chicken to get it ready for cooking. Because we do all that stuff in the store. Like, you know, we trim the chicken and bread it by hand, like in each restaurant every single day, helping those people see what to do. Same thing for cooking, same thing for people bagging and prepping, same for people in the front who are trying to make drinks, like doing drink specific screens that tell them what's needed. So it's easier to manage and they can clean things off as they get them done. It's really about making all that stuff easy. So that's the kind of experience they would see probably on like a tablet screen now, as opposed to like more of a monitor, which is what our, our old legacy solution had. It's lunchtime for me right now. And all this talk is going to be great. So uh, I may have yeah, to man. do that after, but, um, but I like it. <laughs> but um, one thing I'm curious about with the cluster management sort of thing is let's say downtime <laughs> happens. Let's say human error happens. Someone literally unplugs the, the server or, or, <laughs> spill some coffee on it or whatever. You can imagine there's thousands of things that could potentially happen. I kind of, in my mind, envisioned the Best Buy version of the Geek Squad going around for, for Chick-fil-A <laughs> and kind of solving things. But is that something that you have to address from a team perspective? Or is it more of like, hey, listen, you know, the processes that we're running at the edge are non-mission critical to the point that if something fails, then we can kind of just bridge that over? Yeah, it's, it's a really great question. First, I'll tell you like one of the funny stories, which is we've had times where we see cluster nodes, usually not all of them, but we've seen like a node go offline. And then after somebody researches what happened, it turns out that one of the team members was in the back office and they needed a place to plug in their cell phone to charge it. So they like unplugged something from the power strip and it happened to be one of our edge compute nodes. So like, it's funny, but it's like, that's the reality of the edge is that it is not usually, at least in, in our kind of near edge environment, is not a data center environment. It's not even a data center closet. 
it's like we're using what we have, which is sometimes cabinets on the walls, sometimes something that's on a shelf up high. We do the best we can, but we didn't have this kind of technology. And we're small form factor, but like even then, we didn't have this kind of stuff when we built the vast majority of our restaurants. And I don't think people contemplated that technology was going to be absolutely critical to everything we did as a business. So we're having to work with like physical space limitations and constraints and challenges. And they end up making these funny stories where things like that happen. I'm sure that there's been devices destroyed by spilled drinks in offices and things like that. Try and keep them away from those levels, but every restaurant's different. So it's not always easy. But the way that we deal with this is actually the exact opposite of what you said. So we never send technicians to do triage and replacement. We've actually used a completely different approach which is something that people who use the cloud will be familiar with, which is cattle, not pets. So we want to treat our, our edge computing devices like they're cattle. You know, we don't bother knowing their names I and mean, we don't expect them to be around forever instead of pets, you know, where we know them and love them and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, we love our nooks, but we know that they're not going to all make it and that's okay. So we kind of use that paradigm. One of the things that we did partially because this solution was new to us, partially because we had to have a really small physical form factor, budget implications, trying to prove it out, all that stuff together led us to this Intel Nook form factor, which is really inexpensive, like less than $1,500 per store in infrastructure, which has had over a four-year lifetime now, and we're just starting to refresh them. So like, that's pretty good. They definitely fail, and I'll tell you what happens when they fail, but that's let us use this paradigm because we're not talking about something that's really expensive and we're like, oh my gosh, we lost you know, a valuable asset. We've been able to keep this cheap, which really makes that work this solution work really, really well of sort of cattle, not pets mindset. But to make that happen, it can't just be, we treat them as cattle. We have to do a couple things with our solution from an engineering perspective to really make that work. And some of the people who build things for the edge have to do a couple things that are maybe a little bit different than what you'd be used to, to make that work. So one thing that we spend a lot of energy on in engineering the solution is doing what's commonly called zero touch provisioning. So when we stand up a cluster in the restaurant the first time, when we replace a node that fails because somebody spilled coffee on it or things like that, all that the person who does the install has to do is plug in the power and then the ethernet cables to the right ports on the switch. They're actually labeled. So you have to hit the right color. It's pretty easy. And that's it. And everything else that happens with our spin up of Kubernetes and deploying all the edge apps and all that kind of stuff, getting secrets there, you know, making deployments happen. All that stuff happens with no humans involved in the loop at all. So it's zero touch. That's critical because what we can do is if a node is misbehaving, we can basically you know replace it with a drop shipment and we don't need like a skilled installer. We just need someone to plug it in, which you know pretty much anybody can do. So that's one piece of it. The other thing that we've done is that we put a lot of work into thinking about the way that our image works. And I won't go into every technical detail because it can take a while to explain but we basically built this capacity into each of our devices to be able to remotely wipe them back to their original state. So they get plugged in, they have an image on them. The first thing they do is kind of phone home and check in, figure out like, I'm a nook and I'm here in this location. What am I supposed to do? We look that up. We basically send them back some instructions and say, go do all this stuff. Let us know when you're done. We orchestrate them joining an existing cluster or starting a cluster if they're the first node to show up and check in, et cetera. So that's all great. It's all zero touch. It all works. But what we can do is at any given time, we can wipe the node remotely and say, your instruction is go back to zero and start back over. And so that lets us like both address issues. If something's gone wonky, we can wipe the device. It'll come back in a couple minutes again. And we can see, did it come back successfully? That takes care of a huge amount of issues, kind of akin to like a reboot, a super reboot. And so if that doesn't work, 
We might try one more time and then we'll just drop ship a replacement for that device. But that's been huge. And we generally don't have to wipe an entire cluster. But even if we did have to, one of the design patterns we encourage at the edge is think about rehydrating. So if you've got data that you want to have, you're using it and you want it to be there, we don't guarantee it will always be there. So we encourage sending it out and caching it in the cloud whenever you can, and then be able to rehydrate your application if it reappears, like should you get destroyed by a cluster wipe or something like that. So I kind of use the model of like, when you get a new iPhone, you basically don't have anything on it, right? It's just an image. You do all your login with iCloud and stuff. And then, you know, 30 minutes, an hour later, depending how many pictures you have, you're back up and running and everything is good again. And so we encourage our app teams to build edge apps that way. So it gives us the flexibility to not invest huge amounts of money in triaging nodes and clusters and Kubernetes issues. We just blow them away, create again. Most of the time that takes care of it. If it's an app issue, we catch that a different way through deployment pipelines and things like that most of the time. So we don't do a lot of like shelling into the edge or sending people out to the edge to fix it. We basically wipe back to original state or dropship replacements. And that's our approach. I'm a little bit speechless right now because I'll be honest, Brian, I talk to a lot of people all over technology, right? Uh, at, <laughs> at large enterprises, at medium, at small, at startups on the edge of new technology. And this is some of the coolest shit that I've heard <laughs> somebody doing because this is real use cases affecting end users and workers in their day-to-day workflows. And it is just, it is freaking cool. And so props to you and the team for doing all this, just really incredible. But we obviously can't have a show on technology without talking about the topic du jour, which is AI (laughs) and LLMs. I know that you've been exploring it and exploring the impact on the business. And so what are some use cases that you're excited about and how do you think Chick-fil-A might start implementing them? Yeah, just to add to the hype, I think LLMs are going to be the GPT three and a half and four jumps. I mean, I think we're going to look back on them or we might already see them as kind of like iPhone or internet type moments. Like I really think they're going to be transformational in some really big ways. Like I'm not sure how far the current wave will take us, but it's going to be really, really interesting for sure. So I have all kinds of ideas. I think some of them are are pretty obvious. Like one thing that I want us to do is get to a point where we train on all of our institutional knowledge, right? Like both for like technology folks and for like in business areas. So there's really no reason we shouldn't have like all of our code bases, all of our wiki, like knowledge-based stuff that our help people use, like all that for people who are building things and operating things. Same for business areas, right? Like all of our corporate internet should probably be able to ask questions and get answers to those things and find the things you want and plug into the stuff that makes sense. So I think that's all kind of no brainer. Same for operators and team members in the restaurant to be able to ask operational intelligence questions and get answers back. Those to me are all the things that the user experience you're thinking about is like person types or speaks into the box. The LLM comes back and gives you the, you know, the nice structured answer. And yay, that's awesome. To me, the next chapter that's really interesting is how LLMs become a foundational component of applications. And so I've got this thesis right now that is just a hunch. I could be completely wrong, but uh, I kind of suspect in the future, when you talk about an application, you're going to talk about like your container and your database and you know your Redis cache, but also your LLM that you're using in it, whether it's a big general model or it's orchestration of purpose-built models. I just think it's going to become a construct that we see that's very similar to what a database is or a container is or, or anything else that exists in pretty much every app. I just can't see not having it as part of apps in the future. I know people in the SaaS world are going to embed virtual assistants and everything, and I think that's awesome. But I don't even just mean that. I mean like using it as an intelligence engine to 
help you understand the help make decisions, like all that kind of stuff. I, I think it's going to be really, really interesting. So I'm very excited about how that develops and, and some of the things that are going on with like chaining, like LangChain and some of the ones that chose not to use that, like we mentioned earlier, AutoGPT and Baby AGI. I'm not sure if you've seen all those, but those types of things I think are really interesting too and are going to push the way that we build apps just to look different. I guess the last one I have to mention is I believe in the near future and the kind of 10x developer. So I think software engineers are smart people and are going to learn how to do as little work as they can on the thing that they're doing by hand. So I expect a lot of AI-assisted coding. Obviously, there's tools like Amazon just announced Code Whisperer, I think was the name. You've got GitHub Copilot X. You've got the just the whole Ask ChatGPT to write some code for you. I've been doing that. I think it's a junior developer right now, but if you can ask it exactly what you want, which is what you do with a junior, it can usually do it. And I think that's pretty cool. And it knows like almost everything. So that's a bonus. So I think there's that 10X developer thing that I'm really excited about as well. Like when I'm writing stuff to Tinker, like I am not starting from scratch at all anymore. I'm like getting the basic stuff, you know, going in VS Code and then I'm saying, hey, there's an error here, fix it. And it's like helping me do that stuff way faster. So I'm not the best developer, but I think it would definitely more than 10x me. And I think it's going to be just a reality for a lot of folks who do this day in and day out that this is a new way that we work and it's not going anywhere. So I'm excited about all that stuff at Chick-fil-A and happy to add to the hype. <laughs> well, you, you heard it here first. I think that means that it's, it's not just hype, right? It's, a, it's, actually, <laughs> it's actually got some substance behind it. But a lot of software founders are listening to the show. I think they would kill me if I didn't ask you, how should they sell to you? So selling into <laughs> an enterprise, I think I mentioned earlier, you know, it, it scares the crap out of founders and investors alike. It's long sales cycles. There's POCs, there's procurement teams, there's legal processes, you know, all these sort of things. I once had one company negotiating with a large CPG company on the NDA for a period of, I think it was four and a half months, which is just remarkable. Like it's, it truly is. So I guess help us demystify that a bit about how you buy software and what actually makes it through the noise. Yeah, absolutely. Well, my first snarky comment is don't lead with, can I get 15 minutes later this week? Because the answer is no. Like I don't have 15 minutes later this week and I'm being honest. But uh, when it comes to actually what's valuable, like the best experiences I have probably ever had have been when people didn't push a thing aggressively and they really, they asked like a really smart question, seeking to understand, not seeking to trick me into a conversation, but like truly seeking to understand like, what are you doing? What's the problem that you're having? Like, where's the pain? And hey, this is what we do. I want to be, you know, transparent. Like they said, we have a product and this is what it does. And we're not sure if it's a fit for you, but would love to understand if it might be. And that's stuff that like I respond to and that I think makes sense because we usually have answers to a lot of things and we built a lot of stuff. But like, I want to learn because new stuff is coming around all the time. There's lots of people with different ideas, lots of people with better ideas than I have or we have. And so we don't want to close that stuff off. So I, I do a lot of these discussions with people. The ones that really hit are the ones where that's the approach. Then everything you said is true. Like the sales cycles are long. Like this is just a funny anecdote, but like Chick-fil-A is done with essential budget planning for 2024. Like next year, <laughs> we're done with that part of the budget. So the only thing that's left is a little bit of project related work, which is not going to be very much and everything else is planned. So If you come to me with an awesome idea today, it doesn't mean it's impossible, but there's a chance we might not be able to really do anything big until 2025. (laughs) Like enterprise cycles are long, they're they're slow. 
I think if you play the long game, though, as a founder, if you're willing to work with companies, like do some prototyping and POCing and things like that together, be flexible, be helpful. Like if you do that stuff, like, and you're a really great partner, like it really does pay off because the companies that we work with, I mean, we do quite a bit with. So like there's great upside, I think, in the enterprise. It's just a slow process to to get there. And like what I was going to say, which I think is actually my point is, like you got to build a relationship, not because we don't want to do business with people we don't have relationships with, but just because it takes time. And if you can get to know people and build that relationship, I think there's a better chance that you're going to be able to get a chance to tell your story, to highlight the unique things that you've thought about in your product, to see if it's a good fit for the company. So like, it's just, I think it's just build trust and be patient. Like it takes time. Sometimes we want it to go faster than it does too. know that as well. Like just because we say yes, doesn't mean that legal goes quick and contracts go quick and things like that. So it's a mixed bag and probably every company is a little different, but I think it's just be patient, play that long game, seek to understand and seek to like genuinely connect. Like I can tell when people just want to push the product without even understanding if it's related to my role and those things don't go well, but people who seek to understand and make a connection, I like, I'll at least have the conversation. And if it's not a good fit for us, I might be able to tell you somebody else who it is. So yeah, I think that'd be my encouragement to folks who are trying to sell and don't give up, don't send a million emails, but don't give up either. What does that look like though, from a services perspective? For example, let's say they're an expert in machine learning, right? And mm -hmm. you're just like, okay, you know, it's not something we're fully there yet, but we are definitely thinking about it. And they're just like, well, hey, we can embed ourselves with you for you know, two hours a week to help you build this out or whatever. Is that something that you would be like, hey, listen, cool. That's awesome. I have some budget for that. Or is that still like, you know, on our roadmap of things that we need, it's still a little bit out there. And so thanks for offering, but like, let's just stay in touch. Yeah, I'd say it's probably the honest answer is that it's a bit of both. Like there are times where that works really well. And like we've done small contracts with startups to like prove things out and be like early customers and then grown those relationships over time. So that is like a viable path to get close to embed to like, we love giving feedback about products because it ultimately helps us because we don't want to do everything. We don't want to build all the solutions. We don't want to engineer it all. We don't want to operate it all. We leverage tons of partners. So that type of style is a great way to do a lot of those things I mentioned, like build a relationship, you know, be patient, help us work through it and figure it out. Other times though, it just may be, hey, what you're talking about is like a big thing. And we may have other irons in the fire. We may, you know, be looking at working with somebody different already. We may already have a startup we're working with and we just can't tell you. So it could be a number of different things, but I think that's a great model that can work well to, we're willing to come alongside and be kind of part of this and proving this out with you. And yeah, we've done it. Well, you've adopted several horizontal technologies into the architecture. And so, you know, Kubernetes and, you know, a lot of the things that we've talked about, but we're also seeing Snowflake, AWS, UiPath, these companies really start to offer these verticalized solutions. And so do you think that founders, if they're trying to sell into enterprises, should start to think more about, hey, verticalized approaches might be beneficial? Or from your perspective, it seems like you've done a great job of just adopting horizontal technologies. And so does not does the vertical approach not really matter as much? Yeah, I guess it depends. Like, it's a great question. Like, I think that it's a matter of probably finding like, sweet spots for the type of thing that you're offering. So like what we were kind of talking about, like enterprises, we have to focus on business outcomes and get things done. And so like, that's why we're building and integrating and buying, putting pieces together. We're trying to get some sort of business outcome thing done. If somebody else can take care of a concern for us holistically while leaving enough 
flexibility, I guess is the right word. If it doesn't box us into something that we lose the ability to do, to integrate across the enterprise effectively, or we like, we lose the ability to kind of, to some extent, control our destiny. I think those things are really hard. So we sometimes like to keep a little bit more control over the tool, the platform, whatever the case may be, whatever the thing is. But I think there's probably times where it could be a good solution for us. It really just, I hate saying it just depends. It probably just depends on what it is. Yeah, that's all good. That's a perfect answer. So last question before we wrap things up. If you could wave a magic wand, what would you like to have happen with Chick-fil-A's technology, architecture, use cases, whatever? Like it just, it could be done tomorrow. What would you like to have happen? Steal from one of the guys on my team. Like we really just want everything to be awesome. <laughs> doesn't mean we have to do it, but we just want it to be awesome. Like kind of realize some of the visions that we have. So I think it's that we would make good right-sized decisions about the things that we do. We'd be okay with some of the stuff we talked about earlier, like having a bronze solution instead of the thing that's like perfect. But in those areas where the thing that we're building or buying or working on is critical to the business, it's developer experience, it's people experience in the restaurants, really just want to see it be awesome, <laughs> um, be, as, be as modern as needed to be both simple and great for people. So I think that's really my wish. I mean, at the end of the day, what we're here to do is enable Chick-fil-A operators and team members to serve you know, millions of customers. I want to see that happen. And I want it to be easier and better for everybody involved. So that's nebulous, but that's my wish. <laughs> Makes sense. Well, let's wrap things up. So we have two questions that we ask everyone on Software Snack Bites. And so the first one is, what's your favorite technology or app that you've played with recently? Man, I'm going to be so lame and say, I think it's the LLM agent idea. I know it's what everybody's probably playing with right now, but I think it's really cool just to watch something similar to a computer reason and work its way towards some objective. It's really neat. So I'm reading and tinkering and I just think it's really cool. But when you say agents, you mean like you're chaining them together to, so that they can learn. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like the Wang chains and the auto GBTs and stuff like that. I've mentioned them a few times, but I, I just think it's really cool. Yeah, it's really cool to see it reasoning and learning. Uh, it's pretty fascinating. But final one, what's your favorite snack? I knew you would ask this. This is like the hardest question for me because I'm pretty healthy and not a huge snacker. Uh, can I go with a liquid snack? You could go with whatever you'd like. Okay, I think I'm going to go uh, cappuccinos actually. So I got a Gaja Express coffee maker a little ways back and have been playing with like changing the pressure and things like that and working on getting those uh, good espresso pulls. So I can make some good espresso or cappuccinos, lattes, stuff like that. So that's what I'm going to go with. I love the coffee. French press too, honestly. What's your go-to? Like if you're just hungry after this, right? You're like, oh, I'm going to go into the fridge or I'm going to go into the pantry. Like, is there something you go for every single time? Man, I've been on like a popcorn kick lately, actually. Just like microwave popcorn. It's really good. That's a great answer. And for me, it's been lately, I've gone back to uh, PB&J. I don't know why, but oh, yeah? just like, you know, Dave's Killer Bread with some almond butter and a little bit of jam. It's like, oh my God. I think the appropriate answer was Chick-fil-A sandwiches, man. Come on. <laughs> touche, touche. That is, that is my bad, yeah. Um, well, Brian, thanks so much for doing this. Really appreciate you taking the time. How can people find you if they'd like to get in touch? Yeah, my pleasure, Shemek. You can find me in two places. The Chamber of Tech Secrets is at brianchambers.substack.com. I write once a week on there about all kinds of different tech topics. So welcome people to follow that. And then I'm also on Twitter, B-R-I-C-H-A-M-B. So part of my name, you can uh, find me there as well. And LinkedIn also, of course. We'll link to all of that in the show notes, but thank you so much. Thanks, Shemek. <laughs>